Michael. Should I say G-Paw or should Michael? It really is G-Paw. That's okay. not a, you know, a stage name. That's what people call me. Okay. <laughs> it's short for grandfather. <laughs> depending okay. upon your grand, depending upon your counting algorithm, I have between zero and 11 grandchildren. <laughs> and that's not unusual when you're 58, which I am now. But at the time I became a grandfather, I was just 31. And wow. so it was very unusual and it seemed very funny to people. So they started calling me grandpa and then eventually G-Paw. And that's why I'm called G-Paw. Okay, it's G-Paw. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Thanks for joining us. We just, I already started recording. So let's just say this is the new episode of the podcast. It's called Shift Time. Everybody's, thanks for listening. And we have a special guest who just already introduced himself. But can you say a few more words uh, about yourself, your professional background? Just sure. To- I uh, uh, am a software development coach. What I do is I go around and I work with uh, with teams of programmers um, uh, down on the floor and up maybe uh, two, three levels off of the floor. And uh, what I do is I just help them get stronger. I'm very steeped in the Agile tradition. Before Agile, there was a thing called extreme programming. And I'm one of that first generation of early adopters of extreme programming. So I really started coaching almost 20 years ago, uh, full time. And, and that's what I do. Um, I, I visit teams all over North America, Europe, China, and, uh, and I live with them for a while. And mm-hmm. in, in the living with them, uh, we learn from each other. And uh, hopefully they, they and we both, and they and I both come away stronger. Mm-hmm. Thanks a lot. Uh, that's that's what, what I have a lot of questions about testing today about like quality assurance plus testing. We decided to pick that topic, right? Yes, because it seems like you write about that a lot, and that's that's why we want to talk about that. So my my basically my first thing which I wanted to say as as far as you mentioned, you were in this market for many many years. And uh, we didn't have this test-driven development like uh, up until recently, right? So yeah. It's something new. So we had just automated testing, I believe. Right. It was just testing, testing, and then now it's test-driven development, TDD. And uh, what do you think um, this TDD actually works or not? Because there are two, pos- two you know, opposite opinions. Right. Uh, I have... So, so you mentioned that I talk a lot about TDD. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons I do, I, I talk about all the aspects of Agile, but one of the reasons I talk so much about TDD is precisely because I have seen it be so amazingly successful, uh, both for me and for the teams that I work with. Uh, I, I just get so much bang for the buck using these techniques. There are parts of the Agile world that I like a lot, but I'm less confident about. But with TDD, uh, I have almost complete confidence that it is the best way we know today to ship more value faster. So you really saw the situations where people write some tests first and then they write code? Oh, yes, very much so, very much so. And it uh, happens when? When the project just starts or when the project already is in the, in the middle? No, so, so it, can, it can start at any time. But... but procedurally, sequentially, kind of what happens is um, you tell me that you want to change the code in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And that could be from scratch or it could be um, something we're already doing, but we want to do it slightly differently. And what I do is I, I write a test that proves 
that the code doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. And I don't write just any tests, not everything that I write uh, that, you know, not everything that we do that's a test uh, is, is, uh, is useful to us. Mm -hmm. But I write a certain kind of test and that test establishes to our satisfaction that the code doesn't do what I want it to do. Then I change the code until that test passes. And if that's not enough to get there, right, mm -hmm. then I write another test. And so I'm constantly in this uh, sequence of, of test code, test code, test code, test code, where each test is quite small and each code change is quite small. Mm -hmm. um, and that's sort of the general way this, the scheme works. Now, testing first versus testing after, um, well, you're, you'll, meet a lot of, uh, you'll meet a lot of people who are very religious about their beliefs in this matter. Um, mm -hmm. My experience is that it is almost impossible to not uh, write a little more code than you have test for. Exactly. Which, which is effectively um, uh, putting you, creating a sort of a hole in your, in, in your test capability. Mm -hmm. And, but what a TDDer does, even though we do it, we call it overcoding, right? Mm -hmm. Even though we still do overcoding, just like everybody does, we immediately go back and write the test um, as quickly as, as we possibly can. Now, this only works because the tests we're writing are small and fast and easy to read and write and debug. If they weren't, then the expense of writing the tests would just drag us down and kill us. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're, it seems like we're on the same page because I'm a programmer myself and every time I start some new project and there is nothing in there, so there's no code, I can technically cannot write a lot of tests or any tests. So I have to create some code, you know? And when the project is completely empty from scratch, then it seems, it looks, it happens that I first create some architecture, some skeleton, and then on top of that, I can start adding these tests and then it goes into test code, test code mode, like you just mentioned. So right. In the beginning, yes, very often in the beginning, um, you know, I, I just don't know enough. <laughs> yeah, right? I just don't know enough. Mm -hmm. I don't know enough to even know what a test would look like. Exactly. But we call it the steering premise. And, and the gist of the steering premise is this. Tests and testability are, have to be first-class citizens from, from the very moment when you start to sketch your design. Mm -hmm. So I never think to myself, how am I ever going to do this without also thinking, how am I going to do this in such a fashion that I can reliably, rapidly, easily test that it works? Mm -hmm. those, those two questions, they go together because they're both first-class citizens. So you, are starting co you start coding and you think upfront how you will test it later. So you kind of code for tests. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the idea is that the test and the testability actively steer our design and mm -hmm. we change our design. We change our code just so it will be easier to test. And you think it's right to think that way? Like yes. Yes. It, it's, uh, it, it, when you first look at it, it mm -hmm. feels like, oh my gosh, I'm now going to be coding twice as much because you know, you think, well, the tests are code too, right? Mm -hmm. But it actually works because that extra little chunk of coding dramatically reduces the amount of time we spend on activities that are not coded, like running the debugger 
or waiting around for the server to fire up or waiting for the remote device to boot up. All of those things are things that I don't do when I'm doing TDD because I wrote the tests so that I wouldn't have to do that. Mm -hmm. You know what, I, I agree, but you know what many people are keep telling me that uh, our customers don't pay us to write tests. So we don't have the budget for that. It's, it sounds like a good technology, blah, blah, blah. We've heard all these seminars, we read the books, but sorry. Good. That's, that? <laughs> dude, you just, you're just hitting me the most awesome softballs. Let me blow this right out of the park. <laughs> <laughs> DDD is the best possible. Okay, this is the money premise. We moved on from the steering premise to the money premise. Uh -huh. We're in this for the money. When, yeah. <laughs> when we write software for a living, when we make software, money comes from shipping more value faster. Now, more value could be more function, right? More features in the program. Mm -hmm. But it could also be a higher level of performance. It could also be greater degree of stability. TDD does not concern itself with defining value. That is somebody else's job, right? That's, that's, that's the company. <laughs> that's the company's job to decide what's valuable. TDD says, if getting to that value involves working with branchy logic in code, then TDD will actually get to that value faster. And it, I, again, I, I know that this is counterintuitive. That's why TDD is often treated like it's some kind of weird revolution. It's not. It's actually a continuation of the last 50 years of, of us getting better at writing code. But it, it does feel like that because it is based on a couple of very non-intuitive results. And one of them is precisely that if you want more functions, if all you want out of life is more stuff on your screen, that's doing more stuff for your customer, TDD will get there faster. Okay. You understand that. I understand that. Let me give you a practical example. I was working as a, as a software consultant a few years ago in one company and I had a task of implementing something which, uh, which was quite difficult to do without the thing you just mentioned, like bootstrapping some device or whatever. So it took like some extra effort to test my stuff. So I started to write the test. So I started to write some, some not a framework, but some, you know, some scaffolding around my code in order to test that code, in order to simplify my coding. And then my manager asked me next morning, because it took some time, it took like a few days. So he came to me next morning and said, like, what are you doing right now? And I said, look, I'm writing this test scaffolding, like test tools in order to simplify my work. And he said, no, 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 you don't do that. We need the features. We don't need to, you to write the tests. We need the features. So you're kind of wasting time. So we are not paying you for write tests. We're paying you to deliver the code. And what would you do in that case? How to explain? Would, so, of course, we see this all the time, right? That's, that's not, a, <laughs> that's not a, uh, a surprise that that happens. But um, here's the thing. You know, it depends on, on your manager, of course, and it depends on the organization you work with. But generally speaking, you know, they, they don't actually know what we do and they don't know how to do it best. So I, I, don't, I don't let managers tell me where to put semicolons. Mm -hmm. I don't let managers tell me uh, <laughs> what is the fastest possible way to type. Mm -hmm. 
I happen to know where to put the semicolons already. In fact, I'm paid to know where to put the semicolons. I'm paid to be a capable typist. I know how to do those things. I, I don't, I don't, I basically, if you asked me, if I was writing uh, TDD style tests, even if I was investing ahead of time a little bit, although I don't want to go overboard here, we'll come back to that. Even if I'm investing a little bit in getting testing capability up and running for the first time, those things are, you know, that's like asking me, what are you doing? Well, I'm changing my editor. Well, we don't pay you to change your editor. Well, yeah. yes, as a matter of fact, you do pay me to change my editor because until my editor changes, I can't ship your function. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, that's the, the true response. It, it's one of the great myths of this business is that developers, developers have no power. Mm -hmm. But honestly... I don't know if you've, I travel all over the world. I go to a lot of shops. I don't know if you've ever seen this. Have you ever wandered around a room and noticed that no one is actually working? They're all, they're all surfing cat pictures or working crossword puzzles or, or doing what appears to be writing code until you look closely and you realize that they're actually working on their personal blog. Yeah. I, I've seen all of those things happen. Yeah, why do you think... <laughs> How do they get away with that? Well, they get away with that because the guy two levels above you in the organization has no idea what you do for a living. Yeah, true. They, they can't tell. They see you typing. You look busy. Great. They come to you and say, what are you doing right now? You say, well, I'm adding this functionality. Mm -hmm. I don't say I'm adding semicolons or changing the editor or building the test framework. I say I'm adding the functionality. Mm -hmm. And because... TDD works, that is, because it actually does let you ship more value faster. They're never, they never blanch. They're fine. They're great. They're happy to see you working. Just like if I change my editor to make my hotkeys the way I like them, mm -hmm. I go faster that way too. Mm -hmm. That's true. But you know, in my case, what it wasn't exactly a manager, it was like a tech lead. So that, that guy was a programmer as well. So he knew exactly what it was typing and he knew exactly, uh, you know, how code works. So his point was that maybe we're moving to another premise, like you said, from money to time premise. So he said, uh, he said more like, we understand the value of unit testing. I know what unit testing is for, but look, we need to finish this project and we care about the time to market. So we need to deliver to the market. What you're doing right now is you're building something for the far, far future when, you know, of course, unit testing will help us, but sometime in the future, we now need the feature. So stop doing that and just implement it. That was his point. Right. What do you think about that? How can I answer that? That's my question. Hello? Hello? Hey, are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, we popped off for a second. Sorry okay. about that. Mm -hmm. Okay, go ahead. So, um, so that's a great question, and, and it really strikes at what I was getting at before about how much do I invest in the future. I do not normally write. So, so let me give you an example of this. Um, if I had, uh, what kind of work do you mostly do? Is it, is it remote device work? I mean, is it firmware? Is it, is it webware? What kind web, of stuff? Web. Webware. So mm -hmm. in a webware environment, I could write um, a Selenium test. 
yeah. that tried to drive the application by controlling the browser. Mm -hmm. Those tests are extremely expensive to write. Yeah. And they give me very little value. And if, if, if my lead said to me, I don't want you writing those tests because they don't pay off, I would say, well, it's not that they don't pay off. Let me put it another way. They don't pay off fast enough. Mm -hmm. Right? That's the real problem. The problem isn't, isn't the question of, of whether they pay. The guy acknowledges that they can pay. He says, I need the payback faster than that technique can give me. I happen to agree with him. I don't write that kind of test. The tests I write are called micro tests. They're very small, they're very fast, and they're very easy to write and run and debug. And that is why the payback actually works. Now, ultimately, of course, in any shop, there are house rules. And I, I, we can't do anything about a bad set of house rules except change the rules or change the shop. Um, but, but I mean, you know, right. That's, nice that's, an old, put it. Yeah. that's an old Martin Fowler. Uh, that's an old Martin Fowler line. He said, change your organization or change your organization. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Those are your two choices. Yeah. Um, and, and that's a reality. And I accept that that's a, that's a real world, but, I, but the case for the kind of testing that I do is not about slowing me down. Mm -hmm. We've stumbled into yet another premise, which is the, um, the correlation premise. The correlation premise says internal quality and mm -hmm. productivity are directly positively related. When internal quality goes up, productivity goes up. When internal quality goes down, productivity goes down. So, the first distinction there is you have to make that distinction between internal and external quality. It's mm -hmm. pretty easy to understand. External quality is anything your user can tell. Mm -hmm. Any, anything the user could say about your program, that's external quality. They could say it's fast or it's slow, it's pretty or it's ugly, it's, it's always up and running, or, or it's spotty around 3 o'clock in the morning, or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Anything that they can observe, that's external quality. And internal quality is anything you can't tell without access to the source code. So given that distinction between IQ, internal quality, and EQ, external quality, you cannot trade internal quality for productivity. And that's confusing because you can chain, trade away external quality, right? If you don't care whether the screen is ugly, I can get there faster. If you don't care whether it runs in a fraction of a second or a couple seconds, I can get there faster. Mm -hmm. I can trade away all the things the users value and can observe about our program in order to get to market faster. What I can't trade away is the internal quality and layout of the code. And TDD is based around shaping the code internally so that it has optimal internal quality. I mean, we call it TDD and we talk about it like it's only testing, but really 
what it is is the modern synthesis. It's it's test driving, it's it's merciless refactoring, it's lots and lots of different things, including continuous integration and things like that. So it isn't just one one technique. It's a bunch of related techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they are about is this: if we wrote down this big complicated production function that was going to describe Yegor, what what you do today on your job. Mm-hmm. Right. The, think about the different terms that would be in that huge, massive polynomial. The three biggest terms are one, how complex is the domain? Right. Mm-hmm. What kind of problem are you trying to solve? Two, how good are you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Realistically, how good are you? Mm-hmm. And three, where did you start? Mm-hmm. That third term is the easiest of those terms to train, to change, right? It's Mm -hmm. really hard. I can't change the domain. If they have twisted, bizarre business logic, then there's nothing we can do about that. That's what they have. Your individual skill or my individual skill, well, they do go up, but they go up and down slowly. Mm -hmm. But the starting point the third most important term. Why is that so important? Well, because all programming is changing code. You ever notice that, you know, in, in your first day of work on a new Greenfield project, boy, you zip, 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 you're moving so fast. Mm-hmm. Why is that? It's because you're not, cha- you're changing air. <laughs> you, there's, there's no code there to change. So you don't have to ever make changes uh, against an existing code base. But mm-hmm. that's, that's the first day on the second day. There's already code there and the changes that I make to my code on the second day, the speed with which I can make those changes depends on how good and strong internally the code was on the first day. Mm -hmm. And that's the correlation premise. It says you can't trade, you can't trade productivity for internal quality. Mm-hmm. The, the less, less internal quality you have, the slower you go, not the faster, the slower you go. I totally agree about that. But uh, let me ask you the next question. So it seems that you are putting the equal sign between the existence of unit tests or automated tests or any tests and the quality of code. But there are many people saying, and in my experience, just the presence of tests doesn't mean that the quality of code goes up because it's, it's so easy to write bad tests. It's so easy to write tests which, doesn't, which don't actually help anyhow, but they actually uh, make the code even more messier because they are wrong tests. There are so many, you probably heard about that, like so many anti-patterns for, for unit tests. So you can make yes. tests which are, which are basically turning you, which will give a lot of false positive signals and, and all that kind of kind of things. So what do you think about that? So is it an equal so, sign between yeah, an existence of tests or and the quality of code? So, so, and you can quote me on this. Oh, good God, yes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, one of the problems with this movement, and, and I am a very harsh critic of our very own movement. Um, mm-hmm. You'll hear me out there raising hell all the time. But we tend to <laughs> we oversimplify and we sloganize things that cannot be 
successfully simplified and successfully turned into little mottos. Mm -hmm. So you notice earlier that I said that all tests are not created equal. Mm -hmm. Some tests are better than others. TDD isn't a start today writing a test before you change any code kind of thing. I can't give you a sentence that says what the modern synthesis is because the modern synthesis is a bunch of things. And you can, and I have seen it, you can do horrible damage to yourself by starting off with a naive interpretation of that language. Ooh. And by, I don't know, what, what can I tell you? It's like, uh, sometimes people watch too much internet. <laughs> and, and, I mean, you hear me, you, you can hear me, right? You can hear that I'm really enthusiastic about this. I believe in this technique. I use it all the time. I use it for my own night coding. I use it in my daytime projects. I teach it to people. I share it everywhere I go. But, it doesn't fit in a sentence like you always have to write tests. What we've done is we've hit, gosh, we've covered three already. We're hitting the fourth premise. And the fourth premise is the judgment premise. Mm -hmm. in, in programming, there are no algorithms for writing code, right? There's, there, there, there just is not an algorithm you can use to write code. Mm -hmm. Hang on just a second. I have to relocate. I got a sudden noise in my background. No, I don't hear anything. Okay. Oh, okay, good. Good to know. All right. So, so there is no pre-built algorithm that will tell you what to type. And that's a good thing because, you know, the day after they invent an algorithm for telling us what to type, we'll all be out of a job. And a week after that, we'll all be hiding in the rubble from Skynet because, because, <clears throat> we, you know, that is not a problem we actually wish to solve. Um, and seemingly, by all standards of theory nowadays, it's not a problem that it is possible to solve. There will never be an algorithm for doing what we do. Um, so what does that mean? That means that as a, as a, as a model for writing code, TDD is permanently um, unavoidably, uh, irremediably, and happily dependent on individual humans using their individual judgment. Mm -hmm. There are many, many possible tests I never write. Uh -huh. I don't write them because they don't pay me back. Uh -huh. Or... Sometimes I don't write them because they don't pay me back quick enough. Mm -hmm. um, the tests I write have to be cheap mm -hmm. to write. They have to be fast. They have to be easy to read, easy to write, easy to debug. If they're not, there's no payback. Well, how do I get there? Judgment. I have to use my judgment. I never write a test that says, uh, if I have a method called get X, whose body is return X. Mm -hmm. Believe me, I, I do not write a test for get X. Yeah. If I have a method, um, so you're in the web world, we have some sort of HTML, uh, uh, HTTP transport mechanism 
in our yeah. world when we're in the net, right? Maybe you're using Spring Boot. Maybe you're not even in Java. You're in some other app and, and you have this framework. I never test that framework using an automated test. You just you know, yeah, because you know what? It works. Mm -hmm. Oracle works. Mm -hmm. I don't write tests to see whether SQL actually selects data. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, occasionally, of course, in real life, occasionally I will write a query that is sophisticated and complex enough as to rattle me, where it isn't just select star from table. Um, mm -hmm. But generally speaking, I don't waste time on tests like that. And because because of the money premise. It doesn't help me ship value faster to write those tests, so I don't write them. Uh, and a big thing that has to be said over and over and over again about this is no one is asking you to leave your brain at the door. Uh -huh. I'm sorry that it sounds like that. And if you go out on the internet, you'll see there are plenty of people who seem to be saying that, but they're simply not understanding it themselves. That's the problem when something new and exciting happens. A lot of people jump in. It is very attractive to make statements that say always and never. And it's very attractive to, <laughs> to, uh, to write um, simple little mottos that are supposedly capture your whole world. But that's not real programming. And it has never been real programming. Real programming for money is about shipping more value faster. And we will use any available technique that will let us ship more value faster. TDD is one of those techniques, and that's why I use it. Okay, I, told, I, I agree. But um, uh, imagine, you're, imagine, imagine you're a manager of a group of programmers, and, uh, and they don't write tests. So how would you motivate them or punish them? Or what would you do? To, to, to change the situation, to make sure that the code starts getting the tests. Because they don't write. I mean, they, 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 don't have, they right. haven't done that, and that's, they don't want to do that. They don't share your values, for example. But you have to somehow change the situation. What would you do? How do you get them to, uh, uh, how do you get them to learn uh, CSS? Uh, they just have to learn, otherwise the page doesn't look good. Huh. So, <laughs> I believe. <laughs> how did we get them to learn where to put the semicolons? We, we got them to learn that because that is the job. Yeah, it's not going to compile without the semicolon. But without unit test, they can perfectly implement the feature and return back the pull request to you, which will have the, the implementation of the feature, a number of classes, new classes they just wrote, and zero unit tests. And they will say, look, my code works. And you're the manager, you're the tech lead. You're the architect, so now it's your call. What do you, what do, you do? I say, I say, okay, cool, let's see the tests. And they'll say, well, we don't have any tests. I'm like, so you're saying yeah. <laughs> it works. Uh -huh. Yeah, he will say, of course, on my computer, come on over, I'll show you. <laughs> let me exactly. compile, let me run it for you, you will see it works, look. Say, I don't have time for that. I work for a living too, you know. I don't have time to follow you around and watch your screen. And furthermore, and far more importantly than that question, is this question. It works on your screen. Does it work in production? It works right now. Is it going to work two months from now? Mm -hmm. A lot of developers think of software as something that gets done. Yeah. The software's done. And now that it's done, since it runs, we will never change it. 
That's mm-hmm. a joke. <laughs> the day that we stop changing the code that we write is the day we put the software away. We pulled the, we pulled the plug on this application. We no longer support it or run it. That's the day we stop changing it. So we're in a continuous state. The job of being a software developer is, is developing. It's not dunning. It's, it's, it's the daily changing of code. And as soon as I introduce change into that situation with any kind of complex logic, and when I say complex, I don't mean rocket science. I mean two nested ifs. Mm-hmm. That is when the microtests pay back. Mm-hmm. Now, am I going to be able to convince everybody of this on the planet? No, because, and I'll tell you why. Because arguments are arguments, right? Listen, I'm a professional talker. I'm good at talking. I can make anything sound good. You know, <laughs> you, you want some fried okra? Oh, it's really good. Yeah, you're going to love fried okra. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And, and the world is full of people who talk really well. As a coach, I do a little bit of talking, no question of that. But really, my big mission as a coach is actually to get it under your fingertips at the keyboard. It is to get you to actually have the experience. Because here's the thing. Once you actually experience it, nah, all my words are nothing. Pish, pish. You'll be like, ha, <laughs> ha. That's really cool. I did this much, much faster. I found 13 bugs in this thing I thought I was, I was done with. And I know that nobody will be able to change this file from here on out and break our application without first breaking our microtests. And that's the real beauty of the system. Mm-hmm. Because uh, we are in a per- per- perpetual state of change. That's all we do is change code from living. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what we've done a few times in our projects is uh, we had tools to control code coverage. You definitely know what it is. And yep. we were telling programmers that uh, new programmers who were coming to the project, we were telling them that in our project, the, co- the coverage uh, threshold is 60%. Uh-huh. So when you implement something, you have to return back your pull request with no matter what changes you do, but you technically cannot drop the coverage below 60%, because in that case, our continuous integration, continuous delivery system will just reject your change. It will not be merged. Right, same as if it didn't compile. For example, yeah, exactly. So what would you think about this approach? So, um, so two, two questions. One is, is the question of number. What number should that number be? Just arbitrary, and, 60%. Right, probably. right. And um, another one is, uh, another very serious one is the question of, of uh, how do I put it? Well, if my code that I just am adding has branches in it, I know with certainty that I will develop that code faster if I use those tests. So I don't actually myself need a standard. Right, I don't need a rule. Mm-hmm. It's just that, that's what programming is, is, is going as fast as you can at making changes to code. So I wouldn't need that rule. Going back to number, you know, I hear a lot of numbers. The, 
I think you, you already understand this and probably your team did too. You know, the number, eh, yeah, it's, just a, a number. Yeah. It's, it's just a number and it's an easily gamed number. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. I can easily generate coverage with tests that actually don't test much of anything. True. So, so, and yet the spirit of what we're talking about, which is to say the code that goes into our code base has to be our best code. That spirit is a spirit I love and value greatly. I, I work in shops that have rules ranging from 60 to 90. I'm actually, uh, uh, I've just come away from a shop. I worked there for about six weeks with a, a very large code base in Pearl. And their standard number is 70, right? Mm-hmm. And we have this expression. I don't know if you're familiar with this uh, English expression. It's uh, uh, honored in the breach. No, never heard of it. And what it means is, is, well, that's a rule we never pay attention to or use or follow in any way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we only honor it by breaking it. That's the only way we honor that rule. We break it all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and that was the situation in this shop. Um, programmers felt that um, the way that they were working was such that it, it was virtually impossible to achieve that number. It was impossible. And they were right. <laughs> they were right. In the way they were working, they would never have hit that number in a million years. And what we had to do was show them. I simultaneously actually taught them how to get better coverage that was actually the correct coverage, the coverage we need. And at the same time, gave them permission to blow that number away. Forget that number. <laughs> And um, in order to do that, of course, there was a lot of, uh, you know, there was a lot of practical hands-on in the code. If we change the code this way, you'll be able to write that test in five minutes and get perfect coverage over that complex piece of logic. If we leave the code the way it is, you will never be able to test that in a million years at any kind of speed that would make you faster. You know, it will double or triple or quadruple the amount of time you spend adding the new function. Mm -hmm. So it seems that you're saying that it's more about a question of motivation instead of punishment. So instead yes. of rejecting the code and saying that you just broke our rule, so go back, do your homework. Instead, it's you're just trusting people and, and letting them decide what, what is best for this particular case, right? You know, yeah. At our house, we have, um, you know, in our, in our shop, we have a culture. And the culture has certain expectations. Uh, you, you don't come to work just wearing your underwear. You, (laughs) that's very, that's a, that's a very important rule. It's not written down anywhere. (laughs) Well, then how come everybody doesn't just come in wearing their underwear all the time? The reason is because that's not how we do things here. And the same thing is true of most of the TDD practices. I, I don't find that making the rules is particular. I mean, it can be useful during transition. But ultimately, it isn't about the rules. It's about us building a culture in which this is how we live. Um, there, are, there, are, there are rules or conventions that are more common in terms of coding standard than the no underwear rule. But, but uh, like, for instance, um, oh, what's an example? Uh, the, any, if I see somebody passing around more than three arguments to a method, mm-hmm. 
I'm going to say to them, Hey, yo, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. You got, me too. you got nine arguments here. This is a smell. This is a problem. And I'm going to say that not as a boss or as a rule maker. I'm going to say that as the guy sitting next to you, who's going to have to work with that code tomorrow. And we build culture that way without any rules at all. We just build it because we're humans and that's what humans do. So you, I think you believe in, in, in co-ownership philosophy. I believe in, well, I believe in collective ownership. I, I, I yeah, boy. So what they, a, so they have to feel like owners of the code, right? So they want yes. to, to see the code good. They want to just write something and walk away and never touch it again, right? Sure, sure. And not because of their, yes, but not with a moralistic overtone. Rather, simply recognize the reality of the business. Mm -hmm. The reality of the business is that there is no walking away. You don't get to walk away unless you're walking away from the organization. But you know what? The statistics tell us, and there's recent research uh, done by Stack Overflow, for, for example, they say that programmers change their jobs approximately every year. So it means that this code ownership will not last for longer, for too long. It will just be one year. So it means that next year uh, I will join some company which already has a code base. And when I join it, I realize, perfectly realize, that I will stay with this code base for approximately 12 months. So I, 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 I don't really attach myself to the code base. I'm kind of more like this cowboy mode. You know, I just write something, you kind of pay me for it, you appreciate my contribution, but eventually, quite soon, I will just walk away. So you see the contradiction? Absolutely, I do. It's a very perverse market, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, Bob Martin... Uh, his back of the envelope uh, version of of the development of, of software programming has made it pretty clear that, you know, the doubling rate for the number of programmers in the world for the last 35 years is just five years, which means at any given time, half of all the developers in the world have less than five years of experience in the field. Mm -hmm. I'm an old man. I, I've been a computer geek since I was 20. So I, I've been a computer geek for 38 years, which makes me something like seven tenths of a percent. <laughs> hey, I finally made it to the one percenters. I'm <laughs> I, wish I, were, I, I wish I were in the one percenters economically. I'm not. Mm -hmm. But I am in the one percenters geekfully. Yeah. Um, because That's exactly my point. You cannot judge everybody else by yourself because you're an exception more like. You're not just a... The insatiable demand for software has created a lot of very strange aspects to this market. And one of them is job jumping. Um, mm -hmm. Now, I don't, I, I'm not a job jumper because my job just doesn't work that way. I never, I've never, not for the last 20 years have I stayed Uh, with the same organization on a full-time basis for longer than a couple months. You see? <laughs> But that's because, that's because I'm a coach and I'm not a programmer, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I am a programmer. Obviously, I'm a geek. But, but my job requires me to move from place to place, from team to team, from code base to code base. So what it will ultimately come down to is not my sense of responsibility to the company, it is my desire to add more value faster. Because when I add more value faster, I get more love from my colleagues, I get more money from my organization. And I know that's a pretty mercenary way to think of it, but so is job jumping every year. 
And after all, you know, there's a reason why people change jobs every year. They change jobs every year because they have no loyalty to their organization because their organization has no loyalty to them. And, you know, without that mutual loyalty, then we're stuck in a mercenary situation. As a mercenary, what I want to do is get in, get the job done as quickly as possible and get on to the next job. Whether it's a, a, when I say job, really, I mean task. Get in, get the task done as quickly as possible and move on to the next, next task. So I want to be really careful to say that there are zero, for me, there are zero moral overtones to this. I am not expecting that if you're a TDDer, you must have some sense of responsibility that's higher than anybody else's. Personally, I think that is crap. Mm-hmm. I, I have no higher. I have no higher responsibility. Of course, you know I'm a geek. I love great code. Mm-hmm. If I didn't, I wouldn't be in this business. But, but, but that's between me and the code. That has nothing to do with the people I work for. The people I work for want all sorts of things I don't actually, by and large, very often don't approve of. Mm-hmm. But if you want it to get done faster, then the way to make code faster is to make that code in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And nobody hesitates or pauses when we're talking about the difference between using a line editor to write HTML versus using a tool that actually, you know, shows you WYSIWYG, what you mm-hmm. see is what you get results as you're typing in your HTML and your CSS. Nobody argues about that because it is obviously faster. Mm-hmm. But there are other techniques that are also faster. Some of them are less obvious. Some of them are more obvious. Mm-hmm. People get on those te- techniques not because of some moral value that they hold about responsibility or code ownership. They get on those techniques because it makes them faster. Yeah, exactly. But, but very few people right now realize that it makes it faster. That's my problem. That's my point. Right. So right. in this aggressive market, when everybody, we know this is reality. Of course, you don't like it. I don't like it as well. But people change job. They're job hoppers, like you said. Yeah. So well, this is aggressive market. And we know that people will come and go. And can we really trust their internal desire to write tests in the right way? Or we need some punishment slash control mechanisms, no matter how bad it sounds, but maybe we need to somehow force them to write tests and make sure they do that instead of just relying on their, you know, good, goodwill. Well, so, so again, I, I don't actually hold a moralistic viewpoint about whether we punish or reward, right? Mm-hmm. That isn't, that's, for me, that's not about morality. That's about effectiveness. The question is, does it work? Mm-hmm. If it works and you, get, and you get new hires, do it. If it doesn't work and you don't get new hires, don't do it. Mm-hmm. And the problem with most of these control schemes is that they're not very effective. And they actually slow down your more talented people while not speeding up your less talented people. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Anyway, um, Let me give you I certainly example. understand. I certainly understand the contradiction, right? And how hard it is to make a judgment about what level, what level of culture do I provide? What level of structure do I provide? What set of rules do I provide? Those are really complicated problems, and I, I don't pass judgment on anybody who's trying to come up with a scheme. I'm just saying that we have a tendency to believe that only one scheme works, but 
there are lots of organizations that write successful software who don't have anything by way of rules except what the team imposes on itself. Mm -hmm. Let me give an example, a practical one, which happened to me as well a few years ago. We had a, a project which was a product actually, which was on the market for like five years or so. So it was a pretty, pretty big code base yep. with absolutely zero tests. Mm -hmm. So it was, it's quite a typical situation. It's on the market, it works, people use it, there's a huge traffic, but zero tests. And uh, we started to, in, to, to introduce this culture of testing. We started to say, I was the architect, and I was saying, hey, we need to write tests, so let's stop what we were doing before, and every time we change something to this code base, we need to bring in uh, the test as well. And uh, very soon, uh, a few programmers came to me, and we sat together, and they said, uh, how about we spend some time, like a month, to cover the code we have now with tests before we can actually start doing this TDD and start, you know, introducing and start adding tests with every pull request. We need to do some work and prepare our code base for that, for that new mentality. So right. let's just spend the whole month of doing nothing, no features, no bug fixes, nothing, just writing tests, just covering the code base with tests. And we did that. So what do you think of this approach? Is it a good move or? So a month is right there in the range of might be a good move, might not be. Anything longer than a month, I would say hell no, right? Mm -hmm. We're in this for the money. We make money by shipping more value. If I am doing anything that pauses production, then I'm not adding more value. Now, that doesn't mean I can never invest in the future. But it does mean that when you talk about me not adding new value for a month, you better be sure that at the end of that month, I'm going to be significantly faster. Mm -hmm. Now, that does not mean that I won't spend a few days here and a few days there, um, you know, adding testing capability where there was no testing capability before. In fact, I do that all the time. One of the things that happens when you get to be an old TDDer like me is you begin to get better and better at incremental and iterative development where you, you don't, I, I, the code I write is never done. I am constantly making small changes inside my code base. And the more you get good at that, the more you start seeing ways in which you can take just these 87 lines, no more than that, take them out of this untestable situation, put them in this testable situation, and still finish the feature faster than the guy sitting next to you who's trying to run and work with the code in the untestable situation. Mm -hmm. I know that that seems strange, but it's true, right? Um, we get better. People get better at doing things. Mm -hmm. and, and if you get better at, at learning how to make change in small steps, then you don't have to pause production. You can make those changes even while you produce code. Trade-off, well, I think a month is the longest I would ever let a team not ship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a month. I remember that exact that number. It was yeah, a month yeah. and the team was quite big, like 15 people. So it was like 15 people sitting there doing nothing, just <laughs> writing tests. So tell me, did it work? I mean, did it, did it feel good when you got done? Yeah, well, the only thing we definitely achieved is that we trained people to write tests. 
Right. Because before, you know, that's my, that's one, my understanding is that people, like you said, actually, people don't try tests, not because uh, testing is bad, but because they don't know how. Yep. So we need to train them to give them the instrument. It's like with the new tools for making HTML, like you gave an example. Of course, if you don't know how to use the tool, you're going to use the plain text editor. But mm-hmm. if you learn the tool, if you become more you know, professional with the tool, then you have a choice at least. You can use it. The same for testing. It's my experience. So when people are like fresh, they look at these TDD books, they read them, they listen to the seminars, and then they say, okay, it sounds good. Let me get back to work. And then they do what they do. <laughs> They just don't know how. They have no experience. So that was a really good for us, a very good opportunity to like buy time and use that time to train people. I remember the problem with actually buying that time. We had like a long discussion for a few months with the management. Because like you said, it's a pause on production development, on delivery. Right. So we, we stopped the whole work. So we actually got a, a go-ahead from the higher level of the organization. Like the CTO actually approved that and said, okay, you, you guys have this one month of work. I will protect you from the, from the, from the all other parts of the organization and let you do that. So we got the training. That, that's my experience in that. So that, is, that sounds to me like a tremendous win, actually. Mm-hmm. Once again, right, we're confronting the fact that the demand for our services is insatiable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this idea that we're doubling every five years, that indicates to you just how much these people want software. They want it so bad. And it just creates this market where, yeah, I, I don't know what your experience is, but most of the teams that I visit are full of people who do not really know how to program very well. <laughs> And I don't mean that in a nasty way. It's not their fault. They didn't get any training. They, they don't get any support. They learn on the job. It's like, uh, it, it's like you go on the army and on the first day they send you, you know, they, they show you which, you know, this is the end of the stick you point at the bad guys. Now go over that wall and kill some bad guys. And it's like, wow, that, 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 that doesn't work very well. But the demand is so high that it works well enough that we keep doing it. We keep not building the skill sets and the cultures that we need to actually be able to ship more value with fewer people in shorter time. So it's awesome that, that your team did that. I think that's great. And, and a, a thing I would say to everybody who's listening here is, well, really two things. Thing number one is, if it does not actually work, don't do it. <laughs> it has to actually work it has to not just work on paper it has to actually work and if it doesn't actually work don't do it that's the first thing and the second thing is you you cannot <laughs> you cannot ignore the need to teach your people how to work this way this is not something you can pick up by watching a single episode of, of uh, Joe Rainsberger's um, TDD training or one of my videos. It doesn't, come in, it doesn't come in a video. It doesn't come in five minutes. It isn't something that, that you can learn over lunchtime and then apply when you get back from lunch. It takes effort. And as long as companies refuse to support us in building our skill set, they're not going to get more value. They're just not. So it, it, it's really, it's a great story that you told because it, it actually, it sounds like you were able to convince somebody important enough, somebody with enough weight <laughs> to yeah. say, 
actually, these guys need this, and I'm going to give it to them. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it was like that. Uh, what do you think about... Uh, well, you said that computers will not write code for us ever, but you know there are so many tools which actually write unit tests for us. Yeah. So you just give it, you just give it a class, you just give it a, a few like a member, a member of a class, a method of a class, and it just generates you a whole lot of tests. So what do you think about this approach? Back in the day, um, there was a, a tool called Yak, Y-A-C-C, uh, yeah. yet another compiler compiler. Mm -hmm. And Yak would take a, a, an LALR grammar for, for programming, mm -hmm. and it would, turn, it would turn that grammar into the actual code uh, that would implement that grammar for you. And then you would go in and, and flesh out that code. So it, it served as a, as a kind of parser for programming languages. And the thing about it was that everything was brilliant as long as... <laughs> <laughs> you never actually had to touch or change that code in any way. Yeah. Because computers suck at writing code. Because the hard part of writing code isn't the part where you get the computer to do the thing. The hard part of writing code is the part where you get to do the, where you get the code in such a fashion that you or I or anyone else in our team can come along and maintain and develop and enhance that code as we go. That's the hard part. And that's a human thing, not a computer thing. I don't trust those apps and I don't use them. Most of the tests they write are slow. Most of them are difficult to understand what they're doing. Uh, they, they tend to have very long setups, which make it very hard to see what's going on. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, Yeager, but I've been wrong. Mm -hmm. And, <laughs> and I, I may yet be wrong. Right. Somebody may, in fact, be able to show me someday a, a thing that can do that automatedly better than I can do it as a human. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I could be wrong. I will say this. I'm not wrong about to date. To date, they have not solved that problem, no matter how good their website looks. They have not solved that problem. Mm -hmm. Okay. And now comes my final philosophical question. Cool. Um, when the code breaks in the production, when the product breaks, when we lose money, when we lose customers, when something, something happens, we come back and realize that it's because of the bug in the code. Yep. So something doesn't work or something is broken here. And then the question is, do we blame the programmer for that? Because it's obviously a mistake of a programmer who didn't write the test or who didn't test it properly. I mean, who didn't create the automated test. Or do we blame the tester who missed that thing on the, on the way to go? Or who do we blame? Or we don't blame anybody? So in general, I don't blame anybody. And it's, again, it's because of the perverse market. Mm -hmm. I can't blame you for writing an untested line of code when nobody's ever shown you how to do this. Mm -hmm. Right? It, it would be like, you know, there, there's a reason why only... <laughs> there's a reason why you have to go to school in order to learn how to build bridges. Building bridges is actually rather difficult and it, it takes practice and you have to do an apprenticeship. You have to spend time in the field with guys who are building bridges to learn how to build bridges. And we don't do that very well in our industry. And I'm not talking here about certification or college. I'm talking about teaching. We don't teach, we don't teach our developers how to be good. And as a result, 
when they're not good, what are, we, what are you going to do? You're going to yell at them? Oh, you're not good because you never did this thing that I never taught you how to do. Like, mm-hmm. well, well, that ain't right. <laughs> yeah. if, you, if you wanted me to do that, you have, you're going to have to teach me how to do it because people are not born knowing how to write tests. Mm-hmm. And, and so... So I'm, is the fault of a programmer when something breaks on the production? No. In general, I, I take the sort of modern uh, systems line, the systems approach. Virtually all the problems that you encounter, not all, but most of the problems that we encounter in our systems are problems with the systems. They're not problems with the people. That's a good one. <laughs> most of the, you know, people people forget this because we all, we all get involved in our attitudes about the world, but you know what? Yeah. Or most of the time, most people would like to do well. Yeah. <laughs> they would like to do the right thing. They would like to succeed. They would like to win. They would like to be stronger and better and faster. Mm-hmm. All we have to do is cash in on that. All we have to do is take advantage of their natural desire to do that. And then we'll get better. Sounds awesome, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I like it. Thanks for, I think we're running out of time. So thank you very much for joining us and be with me today. Uh, That's it. Okay, well, I absolutely enjoyed it. Um, And I hope hope your downstream uh, uh, had a good time. And you can always find me. I am G. Paw Hill. It's G-E-E-P-A-W-H-I-L-L. That's my handle on Twitter. That's my email address, gpawhill at gpawhill.org. If you have questions or comments that come from the podcast or from any of the other material, don't hesitate to reach out to me. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks, man. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.